Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. The judges on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals hear arguments about whether former President Donald Trump has presidential immunity from prosecution related to the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Many news articles about today's case describe the judges as being skeptical of the total presidential immunity claim. Coming up, we'll hear some of the back and forth with the attorneys and talk with Politico's senior legal affairs reporter, Josh Gerstein. Senator Robert Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, addresses the latest federal indictment he's facing, charges that he acted as a foreign agent for the government of Qatar, calling them sensationalized allegations and saying, I'm innocent and I intend to prove my innocence. The Pentagon reveals that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin underwent surgery for prostate cancer in December. And it was complications from that procedure that put him in the hospital this month. Pentagon and White House also take new steps to revise and clarify protocols for delegating authority in the event a cabinet official is unable to do the job, as questions continue about the delay in letting the White House and public know about the defense secretary situation. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets with Israeli leaders in Israel, again urging them to protect civilians in Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza and saying the creation of a Palestinian state is essential for a long-term solution. Associated Press reports that with Donald Trump listening intently in the courtroom, federal appeals court judges in Washington expressed deep skepticism Tuesday that the former president was immune from prosecution on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Here's part of the oral argument with the, the attorney for former President Trump, Dean John Sauer, questioned by Judge Florence Pan about how far presidential immunity could go. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal prosecution. What if he weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that? Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our constitutional tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked a, you a yes or yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team Six to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first, and so, so, so your answer is. Is, no. is my answer is qualified? Yes, there is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. In these exceptional cases, as the OLC memo itself points out from the Department of Justice, you'd expect a speedy impeachment and conviction. But what the founders were much more worried about than using criminal prosecution to discipline presidents was what uh, James Madison calls in Federalist Number Forty Seven the you know the, the newfangled and artificial treasons. They were much more concerned about the abuse of the criminal process for political purposes to disable the presidency from factions and political opponents. And of course, that's exactly what we see in this case. I've I've asked you a a series of hypotheticals about criminal actions that could be taken by a president and could be considered official acts. And I've asked you, would such a president be subject to criminal prosecution if he's not impeached or convicted? And your answer, your yes or no answer is no. I, I believe I said qualified yes if he's impeached or convicted first. Uh, we may my be saying my question the same was, thing. okay, so he's not impeached or conviction, been convicted. Let's put that aside. You're saying a president could sell pardons, could sell military secrets, could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a, a political rival. 
sale of military secrets strikes me as something that might not be held to be an official act. The sale of pardons is something that's come up historically and was not prosecuted. Dean John Sauer, attorney for Donald Trump, questioned by Judge Florence Pan during the oral argument today before a three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in the case U.S. v. Trump. The argument was audio only, released to the public, and it was covered live by C-SPAN Radio this morning. It runs about an hour and 15 minutes. You can find it at cspan.org. The attorney for the government in this case, James Pierce, assistant special counsel, was asked by Judge Karen Henderson about how to keep prosecutions of former presidents from getting political. How do we write an opinion that would stop the floodgates? Your uh, predecessors in their OLC opinions recognized that criminal liability would be unavoidably political. So a couple of responses for one, of course, that was with respect to a sitting president. I think the analysis is, is extraordinarily different with respect to a former president, which which OLC in that very same, I'm sorry. But not with respect to uh, being necessarily political. Well, I, I think the, the, there is a political process, which is impeachment, and we can talk about that. But there is a legal process, which is decidedly not political. And that is a process which has the kinds of safeguards that a couple of, of members of the court here have already referred to. Uh, we're talking about prosecutors who follow, who are, you know, follow strict codes and uh, who are presumed to act with regularity, grand jurors, uh, Pettit jury eventually, and, and this court sort of standing, Article Three court standing above it. But I also want to push back a little bit against this idea of a floodgate. At least since the Watergate era, 50 years ago, has there been widespread societal recognition, including by presidents and the executive branch, that a former president is subject to criminal prosecution. And Nixon was not about private conduct. Uh, Nixon was about, among other things, using the CIA to try to interfere with an FBI investigation. He then accepts a pardon, understanding that after having resigned, right? So again, I think that also undermines this impeachment first argument. Uh, After Nixon, we, we then see a series of independent and special prosecutors investigating a range of different types of conduct. You saw uh, independent counsel Lawrence Walsh in the Iran-Contra affair. That's an example that the defendant invokes in his reply brief. In chapter 27 of that report, the independent counsel assumes that President Reagan is, is subject to prosecution and says, but we don't, we didn't get there evidentiarily, right? There were not, not that there were, we thought there was some sort of immunity. Um, and that has continued through to the present. Uh, and so this notion that we're all of a sudden going to see a, a floodgate, I think the, you know, again, the careful investigations in the, in the Clinton era uh, didn't result in any charges. The fact that this investigation did doesn't reflect that we are going to see a sea change of vindictive tit for tat uh, prosecutions in the future. I think it reflects the fundamentally unprecedented nature of the criminal charges here. Never before has there been allegations that a sitting president has, with private individuals and using the levers of power, sought to fundamentally subvert the Democratic Republic and the electoral system. James Pierce, Assistant Special Counsel, questioned by Judge Karen Henderson at today's Federal Appeals Court, D.C. Circuit, 
oral argument in the case U.S. v. Trump. And joining us now for more on the case, Josh Gerstein, Politico's senior legal affairs reporter. Thanks for being with us. What are your takeaways on how the judges respond to this claim by Donald Trump of presidential immunity? Well, there was very little indication that any of the judges, we had one who was a Republican appointee and two who were Democratic appointees, seemed to buy the Trump argument wholesale, um, the idea that this case should just be dismissed straight out um, because he's a former president and arguably some of the activities might be considered part of his official duties. Um, So, you know, they didn't buy it straight out, but that didn't mean that it was totally clear how the judges were going to write this opinion. At times, it seemed like um, one of them was headed in one direction and one in another and one possibly um, in another. So I do think there's still a fair amount of suspense about how this gets resolved. But the notion that this appeals court is going to, you know, just rule that former presidents can't be charged at all seems to me um, pretty unlikely. This argument that a president has immunity unless impeached and convicted, that was made by the lawyer for Donald Trump. Where did that come from? Well, um, they are drawing on a particular uh, clause, the impeachment of procedures in the Constitution. Um, And there is, in fact, language in there that basically says that, um, you know, someone uh, can be convicted of a crime after they're impeached and convicted in the Senate. Uh, But it's less clear whether they could be convicted of a crime uh, for the similar sorts of activities um, if they've never been impeached and convicted, or in Trump's case, if they were impeached for some of the same activities uh, but not convicted, um, as happened in obviously both of Trump's impeachments, but here at issue is the 2021 case that had to do with his activities around January 6th and the 2020 presidential uh, election. So that's the argument that uh, John Sauer, who is uh, the lawyer for Trump, was putting forward to this three-judge panel. The assistant special counsel, James Pierce, also said there's never been a president claiming immunity after being uh, in office. Is that true? Well, I mean, it's a little complicated, but in a sense, both these situations are unprecedented. Of course, no president has gone into court and said, I have um, immunity from being charged with a crime because no president before Trump has ever been charged with a crime. Um, I think maybe one president was stopped for speeding or something like that. But other than that, there's never been a situation where a president has been charged with a crime, certainly not anything having to do with, or a former president, certainly not anything having to arguably to do with official duties or the business of the of the country. So the case is unprecedented. And the other side would say, well, the reason nobody's claimed this immunity before is because uh, that's unprecedented. So we have to bring forward this argument. The part where it gets a little more complicated is I think there has been a broad presumption, at least for the last 50 years or so, that presidents could be prosecuted after they left office, even for some of their official acts. And the reason people think that is, if you think back to the uh, situation with uh, President Nixon after he resigned and Vice President Gerald Ford became president and issued his controversial pardon of Nixon, 
if there was no reason that Nixon could have been prosecuted, if it was impossible and he had immunity, then that pardon uh, wouldn't have been necessary. Now, Trump's side comes back and says, well, Nixon was being prosecuted over his private acts. But I don't know that that holds up terribly strongly. But there there is a bit of a debate on that. And it was also brought up today that even um, former President Bill Clinton, there was talk about possibly charging him. Uh, I guess, with perjury or obstruction of justice or something like that after he left office. And instead, that was resolved through him agreeing to a period of losing his uh, bar license. So while it's true, in a sense, both sides are right that the other side is doing something unprecedented. um, There does seem to have been, as I say, a presumption, although I can't point to court rulings that basically say that this is true, that um, that that presidents after they leave office would probably be subject to criminal prosecution if the situation arose. We're talking with Josh Gerstein from Politico. Donald Trump's attorney, John Sauer, also reiterated Donald Trump's claim that this is a political prosecution from an electoral opponent. Does that hold legal weight as well as political weight? Um, It really doesn't hold that much uh, legal weight. I mean, it uh, the other side, the prosecutor, Jack Smith's uh, lawyer, uh, Mr. Pierce, you know, basically said that this is being done through uh, the professional channels of the Justice Department um, by lawyers that are dealing with the facts and not politics. Uh, of course, there is an element of politics involved in all kind of prosecutions. The Justice Department is an executive branch agency. The people there at the very top are appointed by uh, the president of the United States. And so in the, it is part of the executive branch, but traditionally has had a great deal of autonomy in its operations over anything having to do with criminal uh, law enforcement. Of course, there are pa- times in the past where you did have presidents uh, you know, pushing the Justice Department to prosecute this person or that person. But I don't think that's a ground on which, the, in this case, the D.C. Circuit would throw this case out because they feel that it's... Uh, too politicized in some fashion like that. In fact, that's not even really a a legal argument that the Trump side is putting forward. The only person who came close to that is actually an amicus uh, friend of the court uh, group that filed uh, a former attorney general, Ed Meese, and a couple of law professors filed a brief saying that uh, they think that Jack Smith, the special counsel, was not lawfully uh, appointed and that the attorney general did not have the authority to set up this arrangement where Jack Smith is not subject to traditional oversight channels within the Justice Department. This came up briefly at the arguments, um, but it's not an argument that Trump's attorneys have officially raised, and it's unclear whether the court will consider it. And when might we expect a decision, and is this going to end up before the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, this is one of the big topics of discussion among reporters coming out of the hearing. Um, You know, it it is a complicated issue. It has been known to happen that judges try to come up with a draft opinion before the arguments even take place. However, you had judges here that really had different views on how this might be resolved. At least uh, one judge, Michelle Child, seemed to think uh, that uh, this case shouldn't be in front of the appeals court, that Trump's appeal really isn't ripe right now, that He might need to wait until he's uh, convicted. One other judge, the other Democratic appointee, uh, Florence Pan, seemed to think that had some weight. Um, It did not seem like uh, Judge uh, Karen Henderson, who's a George H.W. Bush appointee, was persuaded 
by that. So the problem now is that they need to settle on uh, language for an actual opinion, or if they can't settle, write up some concurrences and dissents. And I see that taking a while. Uh, I would look start to look for a ruling maybe in 10 days to two weeks, although I wouldn't be shocked if it took a little bit longer than that. And then there's the possibility of a request to take this case on bonk to the full bench of the D.C. Circuit and then up to uh, the Supreme Court. I think President Trump has made pretty clear that he um, will fight this all the way to the Supreme Court if he needs to. And it's also the case that for the time being anyway, preparations for his trial have basically been suspended. And so um, he has sort of an interest if he wants to delay that trial in pursuing as many levels of appeal here as he can. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter with Politico. You can find his articles at politico.com and on X at Josh Gerstein. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Anytime. NBC News writing about former President Trump in the courtroom today in Washington He was mostly muted during his lawyer's presentation, but grew flustered at points when the prosecution's lawyer was speaking. He could be seen passing notes to his lawyers on a yellow legal pad. Special counsel Jack Smith was also present at the hearing. After the oral argument, Donald Trump spoke to reporters at a hotel in Washington, calling the day momentous, saying again this is a politically motivated case and that Democratic President Joe Biden, who's running for re-election, is losing in every poll. And Donald Trump suggested... If he does not get immunity from prosecution for acts while president, neither do other presidents. I want to thank everybody for the fairness. We've been covered very fairly. Most people agree that uh, we're entitled as a president to immunity. If you didn't have immunity, as an example, uh, Joe Biden with the prosecutor, we're not going to give you a billion dollars unless you get rid of the prosecutor that's that's after the company or his son or whoever it is thereafter, but he wanted that prosecutor gone and he's on tape saying it. Or you could say the horrible job he's done at the border where our country is being destroyed or the horrible situation that took place. The lowest moment, I think, in the history of our country was Afghanistan, the way we withdrew. Not that we withdrew, but the way we withdrew. With, with shame, we surrendered. Uh, people killed, 13 great soldiers killed many unbelievably horrifically hurt, wounded, hurt. And hundreds of people died on both sides. Hundreds of people died. He could be prosecuted for that. So you can't have a president uh, without immunity. You have to have, as a president, you have to be able to do your job. But if this didn't work out, if I wasn't given immunity, then other presidents, when we talked about today, uh, President Obama with the drone strikes, which were very, bad. Uh, They were mistakes, terrible mistakes. Uh, You can't put a, uh, you really can't put a president in that position. So I think most people understand it and we feel very confident that eventually, uh, hopefully at this level, but eventually we win. A president has to have immunity. And the other thing is I did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. Uh, The investigation of the election which was a rigged election, everybody knows it. And just if you just look at, they didn't use state legislatures and they didn't, uh, they went to the FBI and you look at FBI and Twitter, the Twitter files with the FBI, all of the horrible things, uh, FISA, the FISA court, the signed documents, uh, the lying to Congress, and the stuffing of the ballot boxes all on tape. Stuffing of ballot boxes all on tape. Government tape. 
Former President Donald Trump, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, speaking to reporters at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Washington, D.C. after today's court case. By the way, that hotel was the Trump International Hotel from 2016 through 22. This from Reuters, U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, took to the Senate floor on Tuesday to declare his innocence on charges that he used his influence to help a businessman seek an investment from the Qatari government and conspired to act as an unregistered agent for Egypt. Prosecutors filed an indictment in Manhattan federal court on January 2nd, accusing Menendez and his wife Nadine of receiving gold and tickets to a Formula One race in exchange for helping a businessman negotiate a multi-million dollar investment for a real estate project in New Jersey. Senator Menendez, a senior member of the Foreign Relations Committee, he was chair, stepped down after his indictment, saying in an emotional speech, again from Reuters, I have never violated the public trust. I have been a patriot for and of my country. Here's part of his remarks. By filing three indictments, one in late September, a second one a few weeks later in mid-October, and a third one just last week in early January. It allows the government to keep the sensational story in the press, it poisons the jury pool, and it seeks to convict me in the court of public opinion. In so doing, the government's tactics harm not just me, but each of you, my colleagues, the political establishment, and most importantly, the electorate of New Jersey. The sensationalized allegations are now creating a rising call for my resignation, despite my innocence, and before a single piece of evidence has even been introduced in a court of law. The United States Attorney's Office is engaged not in a prosecution, but a persecution. They seek a victory, not justice. We've seen this play out with other prosecutions of public officers. Remember what happened to Senator Ted Stevens or Governor Bob McDonald. There are numerous other examples. It's an unfortunate reality, but prosecutors sometimes shoot first before they even know all the facts. It would be a shame if this venerable body does the same. So having set the stage for why this process has unfolded this way, let me deal with some of the issues starting with the latest accusation. I have received nothing absolutely nothing from the government of Qatar or on behalf of the government of Qatar to promote their image or their issues. The government's principal allegation of what I supposedly did for Qatar was to support a Senate resolution. This resolution was sponsored and introduced by Senator Graham and co-sponsored by 11 other bipartisan senators posted on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee agenda and passed by voice vote. Now, what was that resolution about? The resolution sponsored by Senator Graham and 12 of our colleagues on both sides of the aisle thanked the Qatari government for assisting the United States military in evacuating American citizens and Afghan refugees from Taliban rule. How nefarious is that? Then they referenced some press release I made. Well, the press release says in one sentence, I am glad to see our friends and allies in Qatar be moral exemplars by accepting Afghans ultimately seeking safe haven in the United States after being forced to escape for their lives. That's the one thing it says about Qatar. 
The rest of it is a call for international cooperation to help protect Afghan civil society members, journalists, and others at risk of Taliban rule, something I've heard many members of the Senate at the time speak out for. Senator Robert Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, today on the Senate floor, part of a 20-minute speech in which he defended himself. The charges he faces include conspiracy to commit bribery, honest services fraud, extortion, and acting as a foreign agent. His trial begins May 6th. Senator Menendez has not announced whether he'll seek re-election in November. He has until March 25th to file for the, the Democratic primary, and that primary is on June 4th. This is Washington Today. New York Times article, Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III has been hospitalized for the past week because of complications after he had prostate cancer surgery. Walter Reed National Military Medical Center said in a statement on Tuesday, the defense secretary is fiercely private and has been guarded about his medical issues, refusing to disclose for more than a week why he was in the hospital. The subject has been the topic of intense interest since Friday, when the Pentagon first publicly disclosed that he had been in the hospital for four days. Mr. Austin's hospitalization had been kept from the White House and President Biden for three days. Pentagon officials informed the White House on Thursday that the Defense Secretary was hospitalized. Secrecy has prompted criticism, especially from lawmakers who were not told until Friday. Mr. Biden has said that he retains his faith in Mr. Austin, part of the New York Times story. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, also an Air Force Brigadier General, opened his news conference with this news. This is a statement from Dr. John Maddox, Trauma Medical Director, and Dr. Gregory Chestnut, Center for Prostate Disease Research of the Mirtha Center Director at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, beginning uh, the statement. As part of Secretary Austin's routinely recommended health screening, he has undergone regular prostate-specific antigen PSA surveillance. Changes in his laboratory evaluation in early December 2023 identified prostate cancer, which required treatment. On December 22, 2023, after consultation with his medical team, He was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and underwent a minimally invasive surgical procedure called a prostatectomy to treat and cure prostate cancer. He was under general anesthesia during this procedure. Secretary Austin recovered uneventfully from his surgery and returned home the next morning. His prostate cancer was detected early and his prognosis is excellent. On January 1st, 2024, Secretary Austin was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center with complications from the December 22nd procedure, including nausea with severe abdominal hip and leg pain. Initial evaluation revealed a urinary tract infection. On January 2, the decision was made to transfer him to the ICU for close monitoring and a higher level of care. Further evaluation revealed abdominal fluid collections impairing the function of his small intestines. This resulted in the backup of his intestinal contents, which was treated by placing a tube through his nose to drain his stomach. The abdominal abdominal fluid collections were drained by non-surgical drain placement. He's progressed steadily throughout his stay. His infection is cleared. He continues to make progress and we anticipate a full recovery, although this can be a slow process. During the stay, Secretary Austin never lost consciousness and never underwent general anesthesia. Prostate cancer is the most common cause of cancer among American men 
and it impacts one in every eight men and one in every six African-American men during their lifetime. Despite the frequency of prostate cancer, discussions about screening, treatment, and support are often deeply personal and private ones. Early screening is important for detection and treatment of prostate cancer, and people should talk to their doctors to see what screening is appropriate for them. End statement. Secretary Austin continues to recover well and remains in good spirits. He's in contact with his senior staff and has full access to required secure communications capabilities and continues to monitor DOD's day-to-day -day operations worldwide. At this time, I do not have any information to provide in terms of when he might be released from the hospital, but we'll be sure to keep you updated. And until then, we will continue to release daily status updates on his condition. We in the Department of Defense, of course, wish him a speedy recovery. The Pentagon Press Secretary, Pat Ryder, opening up his news conference today at the Pentagon. A reporter later asked him about the initial public description of the medical procedure the defense secretary underwent. Do you still think it's appropriate to, to call his medical procedure on December 22nd the prostateectomy, an elective medical procedure if it was treating prostate cancer? So I'm going to I'm, I'm going to defer to medical officials on this again. This is uh, the you know, we released this information uh, as soon as we had it. And so, uh, again, I'm going to refer back to the statement and, you know, going forward, we'll use that as the baseline in terms of describing. Um, but, you know, in this particular case, as soon as we had the information made available to us, we provided it to you. Do, um, it seems because it seems frankly like you were deceived by telling everyone that it was an elective medical procedure and by telling that to the public. I mean, it doesn't seem elective if he had prostate cancer and this was treating it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a medical professional. Again, we're going to try to provide you with the most information we have as quickly as we have it, um, you know, and recognizing that, as I say that, we could have done a better job last week. So, um, you know, again, we have this information now from these medical professionals. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, it will go a long way in terms of helping to understand the situation and what needs to be done going and, forward. And when was President Biden notified that the secretary was diagnosed with prostate cancer? Uh, I'd have to refer you to the White House. I just don't know. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder at his news conference over at the White House. John Kirby, spokesperson for the National Security Council, was asked when President Biden learned that the defense secretary was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And the answer was today. And here are the follow-up questions to John Kirby and the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Walter Reed said that he was diagnosed with the cancer last month. So just to confirm, the president did not know the diagnosis or that he was hospitalized? No, he, did, he was informed. The president was informed, as the admiral just stated, the president was informed today about the uh, prostate cancer. So is there a lack of trust between the Pentagon and the White House? Why did the Secretary of Defense feel that he didn't need to inform the president immediately, the White House immediately about the diagnosis or the procedure. So look, we have complete confidence in the secretary. That is something that we have said. The president has complete confidence in the secretary. Obviously, uh, the, there is a review that um, that the Pentagon is doing. They announced that yesterday. They're going to take a review of, the, of, uh, of how this process went, uh, and we'll let that review process move forward. But uh, again, the president has full confidence in the, in the secretary. Admiral Kirby, when you talk to your former, former Pentagon colleagues, what do they tell you in terms of why Austin didn't immediately inform higher-level officials here? Well, again, I'm referring to them to speak to that. Um, uh, that but as Kareem said, Secretary's statement uh, was, was very clear. He takes full responsibility for the decisions he made with respect to this procedure, and that includes the decisions about, um, about how that 
that procedure was communicated. He so takes full responsibility for that. Does that decision mean he had specifically communicated to his close staff not to more widely tell people about what uh, I, I, We don't have that kind of level of granularity here. That's something that only they can speak to. And what was the president's reaction today when he found out? His first reaction is, as Kareem rightly said, we all want to wish him the very best. Um, I mean, this is, uh, uh, sadly, this is a disease that affects many millions of American men, uh, particularly at that stage in life. And uh, uh, the key is early diagnosis, uh, you know, early screening. I think, look, we're all going to learn a whole heck of a lot of lessons from this past week. One of the lessons I hope that everybody takes away is the value of early screening. And an entire month lapsed from early December when the diagnosis was found out until today when the president even found out. Is that a question? <laughs> well, the Pentagon already talked about when uh, the secretary was diagnosed. It was early December. And as their statement said, in consultation with his doctors, he elected to have the procedure done later in the month to co coincide with the holidays. And as Kareem rightly also said, this, the president didn't know about the diagnosis until this morning. But his, his reaction is he wishes the secretary all the best for a speedy recovery. John, did the president or the White House instruct Secretary Austin to make this disclosure today? No. Does the president plan to stick with Secretary Austin through the rest of the term? Yes. John Kirby, Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council in the White House briefing room along with the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Another New York Times article, the White House ordered cabinet secretaries on Tuesday to keep it informed when they may not be able to perform their duties after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was hospitalized for several days last week without telling President Biden or his staff. In a memo, Jeffrey Zients, the White House chief of staff, directed cabinet officers to evaluate their current policies for delegating authority when a secretary is incapacitated and to forward those procedures to the White House for review. In the meantime, Mr. Zients made clear the White House officials expected to be kept up to date about developments like major medical issues. That was the New York Times article. Congressman Mike Rogers, Republican from Alabama, chair of the House Armed Services Committee, posted Monday night, I am quickly losing faith in Secretary Austin's ability to lead DOD in this turbulent time. The decision by Secretary Austin and his team to withhold vital info from the president and Congress must be addressed. We must hear from Secretary Austin and DOD on this lack of transparency. And Senator Jack Reed, Democrat from Rhode Island, chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, telling The Hill newspaper, we have to answer a great many questions, not just specifically about the secretary, but also about the process and whether there can be improvements made in the process of notification and clear lines of command. So I wouldn't exclude a hearing at this point. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican from Tennessee, was interviewed on Fox Business Channel this morning. Let's talk about the severity of the situation. While, while Secretary Austin was incapacitated, I understand that there were eight attacks on Americans in the Middle East. He was incapacitated out of business. When did Deb, when, when did Kath Hicks become available that she was the deputy secretary? When did she know that, that was happening? Evidently, she was on vacation in Puerto Rico when she became the acting secretary of defense. This is at a time when we have mounting pressures around the world. Here's what needs to happen. Secretary Austin is a responsible four-star general. He should understand the chain of command. He did not take responsibility at the gravest mistake that I've seen our military undertake, and that's the failure of Afghanistan. But here he ought to ask some very serious questions. What would happen to a subordinate who vacated his or her command and didn't tell anybody? 
What should General Austin do in this case? I think he needs to take direct responsibility. I don't expect the White House to do it, but I certainly think that General Austin ought to be thinking very hard about the responsibility that he takes for this dereliction. So you believe that he'll consider stepping down? Do you have any idea what's wrong? Is he okay? I don't know, and I pray that he is okay, Marie. I'm glad to hear that he's out of intensive care. But our nation needs to be okay at the same time. And whatever happened, whatever failure occurred at the Pentagon, I think it just underscores the fact that this Pentagon and this administration are so unserious. They're more worried about their pronouns that they're, you know, that they're fixing over there. They're more worried about abortion policy than they are about the lethality and the effectiveness of this force. What, what Lloyd Austin needs to be worried about is our effectiveness and making certain that we're ready at all times. And the notion that our troops were attacked eight times while he was incapacitated is absolutely shocking to the American public. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican from Tennessee, interviewed on Fox Business Channel Tuesday morning before it was revealed later in the day by the Pentagon that Secretary Austin has been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And it was that treatment and the complications from it in December that landed him in the hospital. Washington Today continues in a moment. People often think C-SPAN is funded by the federal government. In fact, we're a nonprofit organization that receives no government funding. As news consumption changes, you can help ensure the future of C-SPAN's unfiltered coverage of national government and politics. We hope you will consider making a tax-deductible contribution that will support our daily editorial operations. To learn more, visit cspan.org slash donate. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free and wherever you find your podcasts. From Reuters, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Tuesday urged Israeli leaders to avoid harming civilians as it presses its war against Hamas and the Gaza Strip and told them creation of a Palestinian state was key to a long-term solution. Even as he spoke, fighting was intense in south and central parts of the enclave. Israeli forces and Hezbollah militants also exchanged fire on the Lebanon-Israel border. Lincoln was making his fourth visit to the Middle East since the war between Hamas and Israel erupted in October. The Israeli air and ground assault has now killed 23,210 Palestinians, according to Gaza's health ministry, and obliterated large areas from north to south. Secretary Blinken held a news conference in Tel Aviv. Today we also discussed the phased transition of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. We continue to offer our best advice for how Israel can achieve its essential goal of ensuring that October 7th can never be repeated. And we believe Israel has achieved significant progress toward this fundamental objective. As Israel's campaign moves to a lower intensity phase in northern Gaza, and as the IDF scales down its forces there, we agreed today on a plan for the UN to carry out an assessment mission. Uh, it will determine what needs to be done to allow displaced Palestinians to return safely to homes in the north. Now, this is not going to happen overnight. There are serious security, infrastructure, and humanitarian challenges. But the mission will start a process that evaluates these obstacles and how they can become, uh, be overcome. In today's meetings, I was also uh, crystal clear. Palestinian civilians must be able to return home as soon as conditions allow. They must not be pressed to leave Gaza. As I told the Prime Minister, the United States unequivocally rejects any proposals advocating for the resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. And the Prime Minister reaffirmed to me today that this is not the policy of Israel's government. We also spoke about the tensions on Israel's northern border with Lebanon, 
where Hezbollah continues to launch daily rocket attacks on Israel. As I told the War Cabinet and other senior officials, the United States stands with Israel in ensuring its northern border is secure. We're fully committed to working with Israel to find a diplomatic solution that avoids escalation and allows families to return to their homes to live securely in northern Israel and also in southern Lebanon. Finally, uh, we continue to discuss how to build a more durable peace and security for Israel within the region. As I told the Prime Minister, every partner that I met on this trip said that they're ready to support a lasting solution that ends the long-running cycle of violence and ensures Israel's security. But they underscored that this can only come through a regional approach that includes a pathway to a Palestinian state. These goals are attainable, but only if they're pursued together. This crisis has clarified you can't have one without the other, and you can't achieve either goal without an integrated regional approach. To make this possible, Israel must be a partner to Palestinian leaders who are willing to lead their people in living side by side in peace with Israel uh, and uh, as neighbors. And Israel must, be, uh, must stop taking steps that undercut Palestinians' ability to govern themselves effectively. Extremist settler violence carried out with impunity, settlement expansion, demolitions, evictions, all make it harder, not easier, for Israel to achieve lasting peace and security. The Palestinian Authority also has a responsibility to reform itself, to improve its governance, issues I plan to raise with President Abbas, among others, when we meet tomorrow. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a news conference in Tel Aviv, Israel. He also said that he spoke with the Israeli leaders about getting more humanitarian aid into Gaza. In New York City, the United Nations General Assembly held a meeting discussing the United States' veto of an amendment offered by Russia to a U.N. Security Council resolution in December that called for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. The ambassador from Iran to the United Nations, Saeed Iravani, spoke against the veto. Despite all international calls for the Security Council to fulfill its obligation and halt the bloodshed in Gaza, the body has once again fallen short of its duties, solely due to yet another obstruction by the United States. Unfortunately, through the veto of the proposed amendment put forth by the Russia, which aimed at a sustainable cessation of hostilities in Gaza, the United States has once again indicated a lack of commitment to ending the violence in Gaza and safeguarding civilian lives. Indeed, the veto granted Israel unchecked freedom for additional unrestricted and indiscriminate bombing on civilian infrastructure and the population of Gaza without any time constraints. Each passing day of the war in Gaza exacerbates human suffering and destruction as the Israeli regime continues its relentless bombardment and genocidal aggression against innocent people in Gaza. The ambassador of Iran to the United Nations at the U.N. General Assembly plenary session today in New York. The Russian news site TASS explains that under a U.N. General Assembly resolution that was passed in May 2022, the General Assembly president is to call an official session of the General Assembly within 10 days after one or more Security Council members uses the right to veto. 
Such a session is called to discuss the situation where the right to veto was used given the Assembly is not gathering for an emergency special session on this situation. That was from TASS. At today's meeting, the U.S. Deputy Ambassador to the U.N., Robert Wood, defended the U.S. veto of the resolution in December. Israel has been clear it would welcome returning to a pause and the further release of hostages. However, Hamas reneged on commitments they made during the first pause for hostage releases, and we question whether they are in fact willing to resume this effort. Nevertheless, we remain engaged in efforts to secure another pause and once again get hostages out of Gaza. It is also striking that even as we hear many countries urging the end to this conflict, which we would all like to see, we hear very few demands of the initiator of this conflict, Hamas, to stop hiding behind civilians, lay down its arms, and surrender. This would have been over if Hamas's leaders had done that. Robert Wood, U.S. Deputy Ambassador to the U.N., both the Israeli and Palestinian ambassadors also spoke today, and you can find the full video video of the U.N. General Assembly meeting at our website, cspan.org. This story from The National, the U.S. is pushing back its planned return of astronauts to the surface of the moon from 2025 to 2026. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said on Tuesday amid technical challenges and delays, Artemis, named after the sister of Apollo in Greek mythology, was officially announced in 2017 as part of the U.S. Space Agency's plans to establish a sustained presence on Earth's nearest space neighbor and apply lessons learned there for a future mission to Mars. Its first mission, an uncrewed test flight to the moon and back called Artemis 1, took place in 2022 after several postponements. Artemis II, involving a crew that doesn't land on the surface, has been postponed from this year to September 2025, Mr. Nelson told reporters. Artemis III, in which the first woman and first person of color are to set foot on lunar soil at the moon's south pole, should now take place in September 2026. That was from The National. Here is NASA Administrator Bill Nelson on a teleconference. In the process of all this, as we remind everybody at every turn... Safety is our top priority, and to give Artemis teams more time to work through the challenges with first-time developments, operations, and integration, we're going to give more time on Artemis 2 and 3. So what I want to tell you is we are adjusting our schedule to target Artemis 2 for September of 2025 and September of 2026 for Artemis 3, which will send humans for the first time to the lunar south pole. Artemis 4 remains on track for September 2028. And though challenges are clearly ahead, our teams are making incredible Progress. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson on a teleconference. Story from USA Today. The U.S. may have to wait a little longer before a lunar lander can safely touch down on the surface of the moon for the first time in five decades. The Peregrine spacecraft designed and operated by Pittsburgh Aerospace Company Astrobotic hitched a ride Monday morning aboard the United Launch Alliance's new Vulcan rocket. The liftoff from Cape Canaveral, Florida, was flawless as the landers succeeded in separating from the rocket. But shortly after, 
Peregrine began powering its way onto the moon, it encountered a problem with its propulsion system. Though astrobotic controllers worked from the ground to salvage the mission, the lander began leaking a critical amount of propellant that almost certainly has since dashed any hope of it landing on the moon, the company said. That reporting from USA Today. Wall Street today, the Dow down 157, NASDAQ up 13, and S&P down 7. Thanks for joining us on Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter. It's free. It's called Word for Word. And get the stories making headlines in Washington emailed to you every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.